Welcome to TV7 Israel's podcast. We invite you to listen and share our latest content from Israel and the region. However the situation vis-à-vis Russia unfolds, the latest tensions within Europe's most eastern theater will have far-reaching ramifications not only for this continent, but the entire world. At a time when the United States and its allies in Europe, Australia and elsewhere work tirelessly to maintain a so-called rules-based international order, Russia and China aim to redefine the existing global structure by means of strategic competition with hopes of realizing a refined version that could rebalance geostrategic power into separate and even opposing camps. Good evening, I'm Jonathan Hassan, and this is TV7 Europa Stance. Joining me for today's deliberations on the latest is General Klaus Naumann, who is the former Chief of General Staff of the Bundeswehr as well as the Chairman of NATO's Military Committee. Thank you for joining us, sir. Glad to be here. Also, Dr. Rafael Bardají, who is the CEO of Worldwide Strategy, who formerly served as Spanish National Security Advisor. Thank you for joining us as well. And on my left here is Colonel Richard Kemp, a former British infantry commander and head of the International Counterterrorism Intelligence Team at the British Cabinet Office. Thank you for joining us as Thank well. You. And Mr. Timo Soini, who is fin Finland's former Minister of Foreign Affairs and Prime uh, Deputy Prime Minister, excuse me. Thank you for yeah. joining us as well. Thank you very much. General, we'll start with a question to you. The situation is quite evident. Today's topic of discussion is also Russia is currently at a standoff. And we would like to hear your thoughts as well as the other panelists today. What went wrong and what actually has brought about the current situation in your eyes? Well, I think we are really in the most <coughs> difficult security situation we have seen in Europe for many, many years. Uh, it is not provoked by NATO. It is not based on false promises, as Russia claims. It is an attempt of Putin, backed by the Chinese president, to rearrange the world order. What Putin is trying to do and what he put on paper in this draft treaty is nothing but a return to the order of Yalta of 1945. It's not 1997, as he says in his treaty. It's 1945. He wants to establish a zone of a security belt, I should say, in front of Russia, controlled by Russia, which would divide Europe once again into two camps. The reason which Russia is often saying is uh, that NATO has promised during the process of German unification that NATO would not move one inch forward. This is a blatant lie. The issue of NATO enlargement was never discussed during the two plus four talks. And uh, you can see that 
really from statements of former Russian diplomats and politicians, including the former President Gorbachev himself, who clearly stated that the issue of NATO enlargement never came to the mind of those who were involved. And I was a little bit involved on the, in the sidelines of the two post uh, treaty negotiations. We never debated NATO enlargement. The only thing which was debated at the time was whether East Germany, the former German Democratic Republic, should become a part of a united Germany being a full-fledged member of NATO. And that was conceded by Gorbachev in the Caucasus meeting in Sheresnovotsk in July 1990. So uh, the, the reason for the uh, Russian move is based on the false accusation that Russia was cheated. This is simply not true. And the other thing which is simply not true is that NATO is posing a threat to Russia. I was part of the team which negotiated the 1997 NATO-Russia agreement. And we offered to Russia concessions which were not necessary, such as no forward move of NATO nuclear weapons no state permanent stationing of NATO forces in these three countries. And I should add as well that in the accord, the Paris Accord on the NATO-Russia uh, arrangement, Russia accepted NATO enlargement and granted the right that every country in Europe should have the free right to make its choice to which uh, alliance it, might, it may wish to belong to. <coughs> so all the reasons which are now offered by President Putin and Foreign Minister Lavrov, who has, all, in my view, all, uh, anyway, a very broken reality to truth and the relationship which I would uh, question, they all are wrong and are false. So we are in an unprovoked crisis which, for which simply Mr. Putin bears the only and sole responsibility. Dr. Bardaki? Well, this year is the 25th anniversary of the NATO enlargement uh, summit that took place in Madrid. And I, I think it's good to remember that, uh, that the whole process of enlargement what a clear cut. You know, people like uh, Sinovia Brzezinski, you know, former national security advisor, the U.S. president, uh, was totally against enlargement because he believed that that will provoke situations like the, the ones we are living today. And I'm not saying that this is right or not, but uh, to some extent we need to understand that the debate about enlargement already considered at that time, 25 years ago, the possibility that Russia, independently of how reacted at the time will react in a different way today, you know, because it feels more stronger, actually. Uh, second, I think uh, NATO has uh, took the bait of Putin and has reacted incorrectly uh, or wrongly, uh, bringing back the old concept of, uh, of uh, deterrence, containment, that 
are obviously failing. Uh, for what reason? Essentially to my own personal view, because Putin is waging a war below the level of conventional war warfare. I mean, in Donbass, we don't see Russian troops. We see the little green men. Uh, how do you deter and contain those uh, deniable forces by Putin, which is very clever? How can we uh, strengthen deterrence against non-conventional armies or units? Uh, NATO is sending planes to reinforce our, our space, which is good, but I think we need to be clever in responding to non-traditional threats coming from Russia, uh, declared or undeclared forces. They have amassed thousands of troops along the border, but probably that's not the, 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 the immediate risk. I mean, a cyber other units can infiltrate uh, Ukraine and other countries and create political havoc if they want. And that is a little bit out of uh, sight uh, in, the, in, the, in the NATO committees. No? So I think we need to sit down, recalculate our strategic position, and look where we should face the adversary in our better terms, no? not, not reacting every time, every day, to what Putin is trying to do. By the way, it is incredible that in, 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 in the age of knowledge, uh, nobody knows what Putin has in his mind. No intelligence service in the world is able to predict what's going to happen tomorrow. So that's also a crisis of intelligence that we need to review, because I think we are not giving our leader, political leaders the tools they need to understand, assess, and react appropriately. Indeed. Uh, Colonel Kell? I think uh, Putin has is, is reacting to Western weakness, uh, and his every action he takes is always in reaction to weakness, and it always then further assesses the weakness and decides how much further he can go, and he's seen it many times. He saw that when he invaded Crimea in 2014, there was really no significant reaction that certainly damaged Russia. Uh, and, and, and he's right in many ways. He's right that the, that West, the West is weak. He just has to look across at the way that the US and NATO handled Afghanistan just six months ago now. Um, and I think that sort of weakness provokes Putin and give, emboldens him, enables him to, to go further forward and push forward. I suspect he, he, we wouldn't be in the situation we're in today uh, on the Ukrainian border if there'd been a different uh, result in Afghanistan six months ago and before. Um, and in terms of um, the, the, the West itself, we're seeing, we're seeing quite a phenomenal situation, I think, where in our own country, certainly in the UK, there are a large number of people who are calling us warmongers in our own country. They're blaming NATO. There's, maybe some of these are actually being pushed into doing it and encouraged by the Russians as well, but we're seeing that phenomenon which is something really we shouldn't be seeing because the situation's clear-cut, as General Nauman said. Um, there's no doubt who is provoking and causing this situation. And as Rafael makes a point about intelligence, we have had a lot of intelligence. We've, we've got a great deal of intelligence which is also unprecedentedly being published about Russian intentions and Russian movements. But I think we can be pretty safe in the... I would say, from my own experience working in intelligence, we can be pretty safe in assessing that much of this intelligence is disinformation and it's being fed deliberately to our countries in order that we can regurgitate it in the way we have. So he's right, Raphael's right, to say that um, we, I think, lack real, real and realistic intelligence and intelligence that enables decisions to be taken. And he also spoke about, um, you know, the West reaction to, uh, to, to the 
warfare under the threshold of, of outright war. And that's an area of great weakness for us as well. It's something we should be really re-examining how we operate. When we see, for example, Putin carrying out assassinations or attempted assassinations in London, um, you know, how do we react to that? It's not good enough simply to expel a few diplomats. We should be operating also in this grey zone. We should, be do we should be doing things that damage, militarily damage, Russia as well. Maybe not in, maybe our reaction to the Ukraine should not be in Ukraine, should be somewhere else, should be something that sends that message. But I think he has seen weakness, he's sniffed weakness and he's exploiting it. Absolutely. Mr. Sweeney? Yeah, I think as well that uh, first uh, he is testing the new leadership of Europe. Mrs. Merkel was uh, the top doc, uh, top, uh, top lady for ages and now there is a new, new rulers. Uh, that is testing them, and then also the Biden administration. That is for sure thing. And this whole thing is uh, the kind of the trauma of collapsed uh, Soviet empire. That was the biggest uh, uh, ge geographical or geopolitical turmoil of our time. And this is a uh, trauma for Russia. And they started this as early as 2008 in Georgia and uh, they uh, invaded uh, Abkhazia and uh, Southern Ossetia. Uh, same happened uh, when they were uh, afraid of color revolution in, uh, in, uh, in Maidan and in to, to get the corrupted Yanukovych out. Then they invaded Crimea and made the kind of the uh, icy conflict in, in Donbass area. The same, same phenomena. And now uh, what they are doing is uh, they are putting more pressure to Ukraine, but at the same time we should uh, have a look what they are doing with the right hand and the left hand. Belarusia uh, has a serious uh, challenge for, from uh, the, the oppressed people, the, the government of Lukashenko, not many, not many months ago. They are totally oppressed. Lukashenko didn't uh, give uh, Putin even uh, one airport to, to fly the, the, the planes. Now they have 30,000 military who are more or less staying in the Belarus. Belarus is cooled. Kazakhstan, there were trouble, there was a rise of opposition. That was wiped out. Moldova is, uh, is silent because of the gas. You should have a look what, what other things they are doing in the old realm of Soviet Union. And that they have succeeded without slashing a shot, without political or military cost. So that, I think, is a Russian playbook in the big picture as well. Well, the Russian bear has been hibernating for quite some time and has woken up to spring. But uh, if we can focus right now on, on uh, a couple of quotes that uh, President Vladimir Putin actually has made. The first one, uh, is from St. Petersburg's International Economic Forum in 2016, where he said the following, major global conflicts have been avoided in the past few decades due to geostrategic balance of power, which used to exist. He continues by saying it was a blessing rooted in a mutual threat, but this mutual threat is what guaranteed mutual peace on a global scale. Now, the next uh, statement that I'd like to 
uh, touch on is, comes from the Munich Security Conference in 2007, where he said, we understand that there will be a moment in time where our nucle nuclear potential will be completely neutralized, in that reference, of course, to the U.S. developing anti-missile defense systems. And then this would mean, according to Putin, that one of the powers will feel a complete sense of uh, security, which means it can do whatever it likes. Uh, therefore, Putin was introducing the asymmetric uh, weapons race, uh, where each one was developing a counterbalancing weapon. But it, it does indicate that uh, Russia isn't uh, the understanding that the current lapse of its economy and the weakening of its economy is only temporary and soon it will once again re-emerge as a superpower alongside probably the United States, Europe, and uh, then again, of course, also uh, re in reference to Russia. General, how do you view this? Well, uh, they, there are a couple of facts which we simply cannot deny. Russia is the biggest country on this globe. Eleven time zones are, uh, contain its territory. It is a huge nuclear power, second to only to the United States. Uh, it is a country which disposes of tremendous natural wealth, but that is at the same time one of its weaknesses. It cannot trade with anything but natural resources. They do not produce anything which anyone would wish to, uh, to buy except weaponry. And then it is a country which has huge demographic problems which will grow over time. Uh, Russia has a demographic problem which is much, much bigger than anything we see in Europe. Russia is a country which has tremendous ecological problems due to the uh, melting permafrost, which may cost if the Russians want to restore the living conditions and the industrial facilities in eastern Siberia, which will cost billions of dollars simply to arrange for housing. It cannot afford this without free trade with the West. So if Russia wants to embark on a confrontation with the West in an attempt to acquire world power status, then it's wasting its resources at the expense of its people. Whether this is a solid basis for a consolidated government is highly questionable. And I think that is the Achilles heel of Putin, and there we should we should really address it and should in an I should say in a proactive way invite Mr. Putin to think the long term and not to think his lifespan. Dr. Baraki? Well, I think we need to remember also that warfare, uh, you know how the, to start a war, but you know never how the war will end, you know? Even for Putin, if, even if they had spent a lot of money in the last uh, seven years and they have gone through a full modernization of the armed forces, warfare is too complicated. I mean, and the historical record of this Russia uh, the former Soviet Union is not very good, not even in Ossetia and Georgia. I mean, they, they need a lot of uh, things to just to uh, force and coerce 
little regions. No? Ukraine has been given something which no enemy has given before. It's time to prepare for an invasion. War, war is basically a matter of surprise. Surprise gone here because it's a chronicle of a occupation announced in, in advance. No? So occupying Ukraine is going to be very difficult for, for the Russian army. Uh, uh, and uh, so maybe maybe those uh, this is not the, the the political goal of Putin. Maybe it's as a result of mis miscalculation, we will end up in a warfare in a war. But uh, I think he has attained a lot of political goals already. You know, I think uh, despite the unity of of uh, NATO and some kind of uh, unity to a lesser extent in the European Union, uh, he has imposed his view about the dual Ukraine out of NATO. Uh, he has the power to shut off and on the, the, the gas uh, tap. And uh, he's the one who can also come back to the Russian people and say, I avoided war, but I got the concession from the West. Uh, so I think uh, we are in a situation where it can be characterized as political warfare. And this field of political warfare is something we abandoned in the last uh, 25, 30 years, since the end of the Cold War. The West has not conducted any psychological or political operation uh, in the last 40 years, and we are totally shocked and unprepared to deal with that. But for the time being, I think the strategic focus has been more political than military occupation. Colonel Kemp? I agree with that, and I think that um, <coughs> even though Putin has very large numbers of forces, certainly in uh, relation to allied forces available and Ukrainian forces available on his borders. Um, I still don't think that he has enough there to deal with a full-scale invasion of Ukraine and certainly not an occupation of Ukraine. He needs to build up a lot more forces, probably about five times the number he's got there now, in order to carry out that effectively. And I don't think he has the capability really to do that. Um, obviously, a l more limited operation would be, would be feasible. But... Um, the other, the other factor I think that, that we should take into account is the tolerance of the Russian people now for Russian casualties. And I don't think it's what it was one, you know, one once upon a time. And you, know, you just have to look at, for example, the Chechnya war in which quite a lot of Russian, a certain number of Russian casualties were sustained. And eventually Russia had to pull back because it was the, the people in Russia were no longer prepared to accept this uh, uh, this sort of attrition rate that they were once upon a time when they were fighting for their own survival. We, we also shouldn't forget when we consider Russia's economic weakness that Russia and China today are joined at the hip. Uh, we, ha we, th we faced a threat from both Russia and China during the early stages of the Cold War, but even back then there was considerable animosity between the two countries. Um, today, they're not that way. They, I think they, they both have common cause against the West and particularly against the United States. I think I'm right in saying that um, Russia today is the biggest recipient of Chinese resources of any country anywhere in the world. Mm. And I believe that um, President Xi in China is, is certainly cheerleading for Russia in what it's doing now. And I think we can expect to see in, the, in terms of this global competition, we can expect really, we should really be looking at Russia and China rather than just, for example, Russia, because I believe that together they are quite a formidable op opponent of the West, not just in military terms, but also in, in economic terms and, and in, in terms of things like cyber warfare. 
uh, and various other ty emerging types of conflict. So I think we should look at, look at this situation both as a problem from Russia and a problem from China. Indeed. We're seated uh, right now in the city of Helsinki, yeah. the capital of, of your country, Mr. Soini. Uh, from your perspective, of course, uh, I'd like also to hear uh, your thoughts on, on what was said, but uh, to what degree do you look at this? Because Finland has quite the unique relationship with Russia, yeah. as opposed to the rest of Europe, where there is quite the, the capacity to also embrace Russia on the one hand, but also embrace the West. What is different from uh, the rest of Europe that Finland has figured out that formula? Mm -hmm. I think one of the big uh, big issues is the, and, and, and the things to understand that the, the Russians are a nation of a chess players. And what is now taking place, it's Mr. Putin is uh, written this movie directed this movie and playing the the main role in this movie and and all that is happening in 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 before our plain eyes and uh, and it's always uh, important to see what actually happens and what is the lip service and what has happened uh, putin is everywhere he is in the main news he is very important everybody wants to go to the same pictures, visit Moscow. When Orban went, it was something that, why, why did he go there? Why, why, why? Then when Macron went, and now Scholz went. And he is running the show all the time. And, and uh, it may end the whole thing that he has provoked the situation. He has threatened uh, the, the Ukraine uh, to have a war. And he is a peace messenger at the end of the movie. He has created the whole mess and then he is going to rescue all of us from that mess uh, cre uh, created by himself. This is hybrid operation in practice. And at the same time, of course, as you spoke about Belarusia, where yeah. uh, there is quite uh, the added value to Moscow in this aspect, yeah. as well as just on the 14th of February, uh, uh, in the Duma, the State Duma in, in Moscow, uh, was submitted a, uh, a document uh, proclaiming the independence of uh, uh, Donbass and yeah. uh, uh, the neighboring uh, republic as republic. So what has this actually brought about in this uh, current reality or the state of reality uh, which isn't in Moscow's favor? He, he managed, uh, speaking about President Vladimir Putin, of course, to play the West uh, based on weaknesses, which, uh, uh, as Colonel Kemp mentioned, were initially uh, viewed the moment that the United States or led the NATO coalition to withdraw from Afghanistan. So to what degree do you see this as uh, an attempt by Russia, an attempt by Russia with Chinese support, for that matter, to realize and identify those fractures that we're spoken about also in those panels in this past several months, uh, speaking about those fractures within Europe, within the United States, and capitalizing upon it to make additional gains, General? Well, uh, Putin is enjoying one tremendous advantage. He has, he's holding all cards in his hands. He can choose the moment in which he will play which card. Mm -hmm. He's taking the decision on 
his own, whereas the West has to achieve consensus among allies, uh, which is an extremely difficult and time-consuming undertaking. Uh, that's a big, a big difference. Secondly, he achieved something which nobody so far has ever achieved. He forged at the beginning of the Beijing Olympics an alliance with China. China, for the first time ever, uh, took a position in the NATO issue. And in return, Putin uh, agreed on China's claims versus Taiwan and the Indo-Pacific Ocean. And uh, China uh, offered at the same time Putin an opportunity to dampen, to reduce the effect of potential uh, Western economic and financial sanctions. So he is at the moment in the favorable position of being able to choose the instrument, the time and the place where he wishes to act. And that he is doing uh, with an opponent, the West, which is weakened, as Richard Kemp had said, through the Afghanistan disaster, which is not united internally, both in the United States and in Europe, and which in Europe has a tremendous problem of changing leaderships uh, which do not have a clear-cut view or do not have the ability to use all instruments of international politics which include the military instruments as well. And I'm saying this is a German since the weakest link in this European uh, puzzle is Germany, which has a broken relationship to the use of military as an instrument of policy to achieve peace, not to wage a war. That is the situation in which we are. Yeah. And now we have to find a, a way out which will allow us to return to, to resolve and to unity, and which at the same time convinces Mr. Putin that the only way forward is to seek a peaceful solution. Dr. Bardaki? Well, I think we are living almost parallel universe, uh, the West and, and Russia. No? And I don't think we understand really well the situation. And I like to quote uh, Mr. Soyanik when he said that the Russians are a country of chess player. Uh, and I remember how the West reacted to Kasparov, for instance, when he was uh, the world winner of chess. Uh, we invest millions of dollars <coughs> in IBM so the machine could could be the compared the, the human and after a couple of rounds I can't remember the year exactly Deep Blue 2 won and we just relaxed our technology is much more powerful and clever than, than <laughs> any human brain no? and we were wrong and we are wrong I think we have been trying to understand the world in completely false premises no? uh, and the problem today it's not that Putin is advancing the agenda that has been always on the open. You only have to, to listen to Kasparov in New York. Yeah. He knew from the very beginning. You can go to Foreign Affairs and look the list of articles of the Putin agenda from the 1977. So it's not a secret. But we are in the state of shock because we couldn't believe that a guy like uh, President Bush said, I look into his eye and saw his soul 
though he didn't look very carefully or deep enough, uh, was a revisionist. And he didn't agree with our liberal order from the Second World War and is trying to defend their, his own interests. No? Uh, so we are now living in a world where it's a great power competition. And that is, we have jumped back into the past 100 years. But the Western world is not prepared psychologically to, to react to the different ramifications of what great power competition system means. No? Besides, there are China and Russia, which are the most powerful adversaries that the West has, but also there's a second tier, starting with Iran, for instance, uh, that could revolutionize the whole map. No? But I think we, we, we are just uh, putting our eggs in IBM to, to, to win Putin. No? And uh, I think we, we, we need to be much more critical of ourselves and the way we are reacting. Colonel Kemp, the UK was quite active, uh, as opposed to other countries throughout Europe and the West, uh, in trying to initiate at least a certain uh, crisis management policy of uh, more deliberate intentions. Uh, can you give us a little bit more understanding about that? Also, of course, Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister, uh, had a meeting with COBRA, which you had it in the past. Uh, to what degree do you see the whole uh, perception within the UK uh, more determined to contend with those realities? I think one of the fundamental points is that um, Britain, historically, for, for many years now, and includes in Afghanistan and Iraq, where, of course, things didn't go maybe the, the way that we would have liked them to go throughout the whole campaigns, but Britain has, uh, I think, historically been very close to the US, and deliberately so, deliberately, where, whereas countries like France and Germany have perhaps gone, particularly France, wants to go in the opposite direction. And you know, Macron's own separate uh, line of diplomacy, I think, illustrates that. He wants strategic autonomy from, from the US. He wants to see you know, Europe operating more independently, militarily, diplomatically in every way. Whereas Britain, I think, takes the opposite view. Britain wants to be with the US and sees the US as being in its greatest interest. And so I think from the beginning of this crisis, we saw um, a much closer um, policy between Britain and the US than we saw um, w among other European countries. Uh, and, and that's why I think, you know, we've sent, we sent uh, 2,000 anti-tank missiles to Ukraine. We sent forces into the Ukraine, not very many, but some. We've deployed surveillance assets to support Ukraine as well. So I think, you know, th there's been a, a, much more, a much stronger, more robust line compared, for example, to Germany, which has sent some steel helmets or which can be beneficial. Kevlar helmets, which of course they can be beneficial, but Germany, it, even some within Germany have accused the German government of, of warmongering by doing that, which of course is ridiculous. Um, so I think, I think you know, Germany obviously has its own lessons from the past, but perhaps is misunderstanding those lessons, as the general says. Um, you know, <coughs> the, there's, G Germany seems to have a complete failure to to understand that military forces can be used in the interests of peace rather than in, you know, for, for uh, offensive purposes. And, and I think Britain doesn't... Um, but the German people are learning faster than the government. Right, yeah, <laughs> understood. Hopefully it projects in the next election. Yeah. But I think, I think uh, you know, Britain has taken a far more robust line, uh, for better or for worse. Um, I don't believe Britain would ever deploy combat forces into Ukraine to defend Ukraine, but I think it will do everything pretty much short of that, potentially even including 
um, special forces and intelligence assets to back up Ukraine. And, and you mentioned COBRA. COBRA, of course, is the UK Crisis Management Committee, similar to the White House Situation Center. Uh, I served on COBRA for many years. Um, and the purpose of that really is to coordinate all government efforts within the UK in reaction to this situation. And so the meeting that has been held will include um, consideration not just of how we can assist Ukraine further, but also how to deal with British citizens that remain in Ukraine, how to deal with potential um, Soviet operations against Britain, or sorry, Soviet Russian operations. I'm thinking in the past, <laughs> Russian uh, operations against Britain, how, we, how our intelligence services and military forces and police will react to that. That's really the purpose of, of this COBRA meeting. Uh, I, think it's, I think it's so important that um, this situation is handled carefully and properly, and we haven't seen that. Fortunately, we haven't seen President Biden go to Moscow and sit at the end of a very long table with President Putin, as we see not from yet. other European leaders. Not yet. <laughs> Let's hope it doesn't happen. Um, but, but one of the reasons I think that handling this situation is so important is, is firstly because it will influence uh, Putin's future actions, irrespective of what he does or doesn't do in Ukraine. And perhaps even more importantly, President Xi in China will be watching exactly what the West does now, particularly what America does in relation to Ukraine, when he decides what he's going to do elsewhere, and particularly in Taiwan. Mr. Uh, I think one, one thing we must, must remember that the European Union, uh, like Mr. Nauman said, that we have uh, nearly 30 countries to form the, the joint uh, policy line. But what, what happened, and what was very good, uh, what Poland did actually, it is the only successful uh, thing what uh, the West has been carried out during this crisis was to block the refugee wave coming from Belarus as a hybrid uh, operation uh, uh, dealt uh, with uh, Lukashenko and Putin. And when Poland said not, not from this corridor, it right up. That was one of the uh, uh, the pieces in the playground. Uh, yeah, but it was threatened by the European Union. Yes, that's right. But Poland did it. So, so it was very easily wiped out from the table. That was one, one piece in Georgia, Moldova. They have always this coming. And when you s showed determination and strength, they pack up. They will never ever pack up on anything if there is a not the counter force to dealt with. General, uh, you've been quite uh, critical of the crisis management uh, from Germany in uh, relation to the crisis uh, in the Eastern Theater. To what degree do you see this uh, as something that will be rectified uh, in the future? Will the government, in your opinion, learn from its mistakes or is this a uh, trend that unfortunately we'll see uh, also projected to the rest of Europe because a weak Germany means a weak Europe, a weak UK means a weak Europe, a weak Spain, a weak... Each one is a puzzle and the weak link means that it's the, the projection on the entire continent. Well, first of all, I should say that uh, quite, a, quite a few Europeans are not too uh, unhappy about Germans who pretend to be peace-loving. Uh, that was not always the case. Uh, so, um, 
<laughs> that, that is one point one has to keep in mind, but there is a big difference between peace-loving and dreaming of in illusions. And I think the, uh, the majority of the German people, as you could see in recent polls, believes that Germany has to live up to its responsibility, has to join the consensus of the other European countries and has to include in crisis management all instruments of international politics and it, that it has to show resolve. But uh, does this mean that we're going to see? Uh, I a think you, we will see military buildup. We will see the military buildup is underway. Underway. Um, but and the present government is not is not willing to change it. Um, okay. um, I hear some rumors, so far not confirmed, that uh, Germany is thinking in the same direction as far as uh, future aircraft. Uh, is concerned as Finland just has decided upon. So uh, we will see what will happen. And uh, for Germany is something very true, which uh, friends like uh, our Spanish and British uh, colleague here will confirm. Germany is in most cases taking the right decision, but unfortunately in most cases too late. And that is something which we have to change. And I think we will change. Indeed, you were referring, of course, to the F-35s, Dr. Bardaki. Well, I'm going to throw an irreverent thought you know, on the, to the table. I think uh, four, four and a half, four years ago, the U.S. President Trump at the time said that NATO was obsolete and the whole mm -hmm. world revolved against, against him. Yeah. Uh, but a, a year and a half, the opposite of Trump, President Macron, honor French, uh, a statement said, NATO is brain dead. Uh, what if they are right, both of them? It's obsolete and brain dead. The whole reaction that uh, has benefited NATO and Stoltenberg, Secretary General first, because of this, is now again in the, in the forefront of the newspapers. What if we have a zombie organization that benefits at the end of the long run uh, putting, because we are not putting in place different arrangements, and we are keeping just a, a, a body which is a walking dead? In security, in security terms, no? I think we, we need to go through this kind of thinking as well, no? for radical or alternative it may, it may look at first sight. But what if now, because we are in a rush to invest in modernized equipment, we all go back to the American companies and buy F-35 instead of keeping our armed industry in Europe alive somehow? So there, there will be some ramification, which we are still not conscious, that may end up weakening the Europeans more than we are, or we were in the very beginning of the crisis. No? And I think we need to think alternatively to see all the, 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 the impact and implication this crisis may have for, for the whole European security in the future. Colonel Kemp, I, I'd like also to get uh, some perspective on the domestic um, opinions of, of Europeans when we're talking about uh, the public reaction, uh, and uh, it was quite portrayed on American television, where there was quite the animosity towards Russia in particular. Uh, Russian uh, television was quite, uh, had quite the robust animosity towards the United States, but that confrontation between Europeans, uh, continental Europeans, uh, islanders, 
uh, versus uh, Russia was less uh, robust, if you will, uh, trying to mitigate uh, the friction as much as possible, but at the same time also comprehending that there is an issue that needs to be contended with. Where is that divide? Where is that um, uh, inability, if you may, that uh, Europeans are able to fully acknowledge the necessity to stand up and say, now is enough? Before I answer that, I'd also like to pick up on um, uh, Raphael's point about the relevance today of NATO. And I think one thing that we might see coming out of this situation is either a subset of NATO or even a, 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 a separate alliance from NATO. An AUKUS of sorts. Exa exactly. AUKUS, um, which obviously enraged the French, which is to all of our advantages. Um, <laughs> uh, Next time we're bringing a French right, family. Right, let's do that, let's do that. I can, I can suggest a few. Um, but I think, you know, that's, that's an alliance that has the potential of being very successful in relation to countering China. And I think equally we could, we could form some form of alliance, which I think would include countries like Britain, uh, perhaps Holland, Eastern European countries as well, um, some of which are members of NATO, some are not. Um, to, to produce a more effective and unified reaction the next time President Putin goes on the offensive. And I think that's a very real prospect, and I would certainly welcome something along those lines, a sort of Eastern European AUKUS, if you like. Um, going to, to your question, I think that you know, the, the West, US and, uh, and Europe, most European countries, if not all, certainly Western European countries, have been contaminated by wokeism which means that everyone is the same, Every, no one is different, we must be nice to everyone, we, we can't uh, speak out against them, we can't afford to have animosity against them, we've got to love the world, thinking that people in other countries and other parts of the world uh, think the same as us. Of course they don't think the same as you mentioned, the, 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 the more prominent animosity of Russian people towards the West than vice versa. I'm not saying it's a good thing to have animosity from between different countries, but I think there is a point at which countries should um, stand together and stand up and support uh, aggression against, support um, counter-aggression against them. And I mentioned before that we've seen a worrying trend in Europe for people to blame NATO for this situation that's happening. So I think that's a, it's a real problem for our countries, and, and it partly comes from uh, a, a, sign of, a kind of nihilism and globalism, internationalism that um, that has, I, I think, contaminated our countries for for many, many years. And you know, you, you just have to look, for example, at the reluctance of people to point the finger at China over the what I would call the China virus, or you might call COVID. And that you know, that's that's that rather than identifying the source and then working out what you're going to do about it, we've got to avoid the subject altogether. And I think that's a real weakness that we have, which should really be addressed. Mr. Sawyer? Yeah, I, I think uh, Richard has a, a very, very good point in that. And for example, if we look at the history of uh, how the people in Europe have reacted to the wars and threats of wars, we have had uh, several, several marches for peace. Now, actually, Russia is threatening a war, a single individual country, and there is a not a single march for peace, not in any capital in Europe. No signal, no reference 
Uh, where are the NGOs? Where are the peace people? Where are the intelligent? Uh, where are the professors? Where is everybody? They're focused on a country I can tell you about later. Yeah, that's right. So this is, this is amazing if we had the reaction, what we used to have. But if it's a bright week or whatever, other, then the, the streets are filled with carnival. And in, Brit in Britain, we've seen um, so-called peace organizations condemning NATO. Yeah. Yes, in some cases, they've also condemned Russia. But the emphasis is on condemning your own rather than um, actually identifying the real problem and focusing on that and, and having peace protests against that. Well, that's, of course, uh, one element which uh, uh, brings about the next question, and that is, is the, the European continent or uh, nation states within Europe um, posed on advancing education systems in uh, a viable manner that would wake up the young generations to understand that realities need to be contended with and you cannot create realities unless you have the tools to do so? Well, you look at me, uh, <laughs> I think we we became countries which are primarily looking inward. We are used to well-being, to a blooming economy, to uh, an international cooperation which brought us tremendous advantages, globalization. We, are, we, we consist of societies which got used to traveling across the world widening the horizon, getting, I should say, more prepared for compromises, for the will to give up own values in order to live together with others. And we forgot that despite all these goodies, there are still discrepancies, there are still competing values, there are still competing systems. And we forgot that freedom can only be guaranteed if people are willing to take responsibility for the protection of peace and, f and freedom. That is what we forgot. We got used to the comfortable way of living in peace and living in wealth and under stable conditions. Putin has given us a wake-up call. And I think the result which he didn't want to achieve is we see a strengthening of the cohesion of the European Union and of NATO. We see, if I look at uh, our friend Timo Soini, we see an increasing preparedness of countries uh, to consider a membership in NATO, which mm -hmm. were before that a little bit more reluctant. Yeah. Um, so I think we will, we will possibly see as a result of this present crisis a strengthening of the idea that the incredible achievement of us, the West, that we have found a solution which guarantees the individual the maximum freedom protected by the force of law against all other elements we see a renaissance and that we will understand, that our young people will understand that in order to guarantee 
this biggest advantage of us Westerners can only be maintained if they are willing to take responsibility for the protection of that. And there is some uh, light at the end of the tunnel. I see, uh, at least from my personal perspective, in Spain we can see a president in Madrid who is quite active and doing much in order to bring changing realities. There are different uh, uh, parties at play that are trying to regain some confidence in, in uh, the national aspirations of, of a country that has lost so much? Well, when politicians are very active, usually they are active in their own way. So uh, <laughs> I really don't give much credit to act activity per se. No? Uh, look, I think uh, what Donald Rumsfeld said uh, years ago, that Europe is divided between the old Europe and new Europe. The old Europe is living in a, in, a, in a schizophrenic situation. On the one hand, it's a Europe of museums, beautiful, historical, arts, all the glory past. On the other hand, it's uh, Disney World, or Disneyland Paris. You know, it's, a, it's an amusement park. We have the welfare state for everyone, which is unsustainable. But beyond museums and, and Disneyland, there is not much. I mean, you can have all the faith you want in the, in the young, young people in Europe. The young Europe uh, people is shrinking. Where, where are the young? We don't produce babies. Uh, there is a, the, this so-called replacement or big replacement theory, no? Uh, that even the Republicans in France yesterday mentioned. Uh, I mean, strategically, the most challenging situation for Europe is the demographic suicide we are living. Because linked to that, or explaining that as well, is the, the whole collapse of the traditional Judeo-Christian values, the family, the authority, yeah. responsibility, uh, respect to the, 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 the power in the institutions. Um, uh, I mean, when you see movement like Black uh, Lives Matter, which are Marxist in origin, and which only, only goal is to threaten the authority, the police authority, and create havoc, society and defund police. This in Europe is happening as well. And it's happening in, in different ways, but it's happening. And we need to counter this counter-authority movement, which is quite spread by the left and by the inaction of the conservatives in many ways in the last four or five decades. No? So I'm optimistic. No. Uh, I have to because I don't have any other place to live. Uh, but sincerely, the, all the trends, external and internal, points out to a weakest and weaker uh, Europe in the near future. We will focus uh, in our next program also on family values much more and uh, we should focus also on this demographic issue that is something that governments throughout Europe need to contend with. But, but if, if I may add something so very briefly, uh, well, in the, during the Cold War people ask, are the Americans going to be killed defending Berlin uh, or Bonn at the time? If you ask now, are you willing to die for Donbass? The whole majority in all countries say, no, what the hell? I mean, uh, leave the Ukrainian, no, it's, it's not our problem. And that's a mentality that cannot be changed in the short term, unfortunately. Indeed, but well, we're drawing near to the end of the program, and I'd like to give each and every one of you a closing sentence, if you will, as we don't have much time. Um, Colonel Kemp, we'll start with you. I think we, um, we, we need to uh, learn from what's happened here, what's been happening. Um, but I, I, I strongly suspect we won't learn. It depends what unfolds in Ukraine. But let's say, for example, and let's hope that there is not a war in Ukraine, a major war in Ukraine. Um, I, th I think if that scenario it, it develops, then 
we will learn very little from this situation. Uh, perhaps if there is a conflict involving Russia and Ukraine, then people in the West might sit up and, and take some action. But I think otherwise, this whole um, crisis that's been developing is not going to be a, create any significant change in the West. I think you said uh, in one of your articles just recently, uh, a limited incursion is not an invasion, an invasion is not occupation. Well, no, I didn't. So uh, it was President Biden who did <laughs> the, the, the distinction. Well, yeah, but uh, uh, we'll if distinguish I, between the two of you. Go yeah, ahead. yeah, just uh, a, a small, small sentence, and I want to answer to Mr. Nauman. He's right that uh, the NATO membership hasn't been very popular in Finland. It has been around 25 to 30 percent, but now it has been going up as a result of this crisis. And that is significant change. General Nauman? Well, uh, if, if I think of what Rafael just said, I think the issue for us Europeans and for the young people in Europe is not to die for something. The issue is to live for something and to live for a society which is free, which lives together in a peaceful way with others. And there the crisis has given us a wake-up call so that we can call upon them, take responsibility so that you will live. Dr. Bardaki, last sentence. Well, I wish uh, we, we, we can take the right lessons and learn from the crisis. Uh, we prepare ourselves for the future crisis that will come in a better way and better prepare in advance. Well, this is all the time that we have for today. I'd like to thank General Nauman, Dr. Barrachi, Colonel Camp, and Mr. Sonia for being part of today's program. And I'd like to thank our viewers as well. And we will see you next time. Thank you for joining us in another TV7 Israel podcast. For more content, visit our website at tv7israelnews.com or follow us on social media.